Hello, good evening from San Francisco, 11th of September. We're one half of the It's a Monkey podcast crew. Myself, Kevin Garber, CEO of 89N. And the other half today is still in San Francisco. James, uh, what time are you over there? Uh, over here in Sydney, it's 3.30 p.m. Uh, tomorrow, your time. Tomorrow. So you're at uh, Wednesday, the 12th of September. I'm Tuesday, the 11th of September. I actually did get a message from someone who said they do actually appreciate us mentioning the date. It does help them place a little bit the context of the news, bearing in mind we are in the tech industry where news moves very, very fast. Yep. Podcasting from the future, <laughs> from my end anyway. So welcome to you listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. This is a very special edition. This is going to be a bumper edition. It's probably going to be a little bit longer than usual. I'm not sure how much longer than usual, but it's going to be full of all sorts of goodness. The reason for the special edition is that I'm in San Francisco for the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference. TechCrunch is one of the technology blogs. I've been following it for years. They have a conference a, a, a couple of times a year. I think one's in San Francisco, one's in New York. The San Francisco one tends to be jam-packed with the who's who of the tech world. It's day two of the conference. I've been at the conference from morning to night. I've managed to interview some interesting people. I've also heard some interesting talks, and we're basically going to um, cover some of the content that's come out of the tech crunch disrupt conference there is still one day to go and where some really interesting people are still to talk people like um evan biz uh, the founders of twitter two of the three founders of twitter as well as marissa mayer who is uh, ex-google and now ceo of yahoo and uh, they still to go on day three james have you been listening or following the conference at all uh, I've been trying to. I've been trying to. There's a huge deluge of information, uh, as always, in a very short period of time. So I've been trying to sort of soak up what I can. But um, how have you found the conference so far? What's the, what's the quality of the talks being like this year? The quality of the talks has been absolutely outstanding. The conference is bigger. I think it's my third time at the conference, um, third or fourth. I think it's a third time. It is, it is bigger and bolder than I've ever seen it. Not only are the talks absolutely sterling quality just consistently um, filled with with very insightful people but the the sta the stalls and the sponsors and and the, the, they have a whole area where where really new unfunded or very um, poorly funded startups can actually exhibit for a very cheap amount of money and they are absolutely jam-packed and they and this time for the first year i believe they've got all these different country pavilions so they have a Chile section, an Israel section, a Brazil section, and it really, it really indicates and, and, and gives a sense of the vastness of the startup scene around the world. Um, and I think what it's also indicated for me is the uniqueness of San Francisco, of Silicon Valley, because 99.9% .9 of these startups, none of us ever hear of, but a lot of the startups from San Francisco and to a lesser degree New York really do, as, as the, the, the cliche goes, lands up changing the world. So there's a, a lot of buzz, a lot happening. Um, I know you joined, was it, you came with me, um, was it one year or two years ago? Uh, which was a disrupt one? I think it might have been one year ago, perhaps. 
It's hard to know. They all I think, yeah, I, I, think I think it was actually I think it was actually two years ago. Was it? I was think it? it was actually two years ago. And um, of, of course, um, my first TechCrunch. I think you had uh, we had just started working together, and it was when Spellarus had just been launched and accepted to be reviewed there. And, and Spellarus has now evolved into CheckDog, and, and that started us on a on our own personal um, wonderful journey. But why don't we get why don't we get straight into it, James? Um, why, the conference kicked off yesterday with um, Jack Dorsey, who um, I know you know, and just to tell um, to tell our, our listeners who Jack Dorsey is, Jack Dorsey is really the creator of Twitter. He was working with Ev and Biz from Twitter, and he was the, the visionary and the architect behind Twitter. And he's a really interesting character because he's not your cliched, hyper-driven startup guy. He's, he's much more subtle, and he even calls himself an artist. So I made some notes um, that I picked up on his speech. It was an incredibly, it wasn't an interview. It was actually just a, uh, he got up there and he did a presentation. It was very succinct. It was very tight. Um, some of the things that Jack said, he, he said he, he never wanted to be an entrepreneur he just wanted to build things and share them with others. He is an artist. So that's not your really typical tech startup entrepreneur statement to make. No, absolutely. That's a very uh, very unique approach. Um, and he said he got the inspiration for Twitter by noticing that interesting things really happen at intersections. And um, he's he's always had this... Um, he's always had this, you know, idea about um, traffic, and he had this fascinating, um, you know, vision about just, you know, working out and and visualizing traffic. So that's, uh, you know, one of the inspirations, one of the areas where he got inspiration um, for Twitter. Um, I will just also let people know at this stage, if they are listening to us, that we are doing a bit of a remote setup. We're not in our in our normal studio, so if you can, please excuse any technical glitches and audio glitches. Uh, we are trying to do our best here, but it might be a little bit quirky on your end. So um, I appreciate that understanding. The other thing I saw, um, I saw one uh, article up on TechCrunch uh, where it was talking where, where it was talking about uh, why Square was originally called Squirrel, um, I, I and then saw it's that. a, sort of that was a picture of the uh, acorn-shaped card reader. Did he talk about that at all in the talk? He he didn't. No, he didn't speak speak about Square at all. In fact, he hardly spoke about Twitter. It was a much more conceptual type of deeply philosophical and creative talk. And and he even went off on a tangent at one stage about the founders, the founding fathers of the USA, and oh, wow. uh, and how the Constitution is, is is all about realizing that the country will often be forced to push to reinvent itself in new and different ways. And I, I have ho heard that argument before about the United States. I think particularly some of the mythology in Silicon Valley likes to think that the founding fathers were sort of like tech startup guys that are, you, you know, that, that they were creating something new and, and, and uh, the constitution is almost a process of, of iteration. So that, that was, that was um, quite interesting and um, he, he again he got a bit more philosophical in saying that the um, being a founder is is not a role it's an attitude 
And he said, our role as founders is to distribute the future evenly. So you can see getting quite, yeah, quite a brilliant quote. Yeah, getting quite metaphorical and, uh, and, and creative. And then, of course, he gets really quite dramatic when he said, we don't want disruption, which was a little bit of a slap in the face to the TechCrunch Disrupt conference. He says, we don't want disruption. We want revolution. The revolution doesn't have to be loud or violent. There's also power in stillness. So uh, almost, uh, dare I say, it, a, a, a presidential style of speech from Jack Dorsey, uh, the co-founder of, of Twitter. Yeah, it sounds brilliant. I'll definitely uh, have to check it out. I believe the whole talk is up on TechCrunch. So you can go check it out as well. Yeah, I think if you're listening to this podcast and um, you, you haven't been following TechCrunch, go check out some of the videos and the articles. Um, there's a lot there. So just uh, even just a couple of the, the videos, you'll really get inspiration. Um, I was happy to hear that he said, you don't have to start from scratch to do something interesting. And I think that's where if you're listening to this podcast and you're a wannabe entrepreneur, there are so many platforms and APIs and, and products you can ho hook into and build upon it's, it's never been easier um, to build something. He said, pick a movement and um, use technology to remind us we are human and we should be so effective at implementing our technology that the technology should almost disappear. So it was a wonderful way to um, kick off the, 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 the TechCrunch conference on a, on a bit of a metaphorical, poetic note. So that was, that was really interesting. I believe he um, refused to get interviewed they wanted to interview him, but he just wanted to give a, uh, a, a presentation. Yeah, sounds like it would have definitely been an experience to be there. Yeah, that was... Uh, so after the metaphorical kickoff, um, this morning there was another session which, which I found very interesting about the enterprise. It was called something like Enterprise is Now Sexy. Now, I know you and I have chatted a bit over the years about enterprise products, versus consumer products and there seemed to be a little bit of the merging of the two and this was really relevant because i think you know the enterprise at the end of the day a lot of us work in businesses a lot of us use products in businesses a lot traditionally these products have been incredibly ordinary um, and they had a panel of of these founders of enterprise companies one of them um, was a signer who's founded by the ex Facebook guys and one of the ex-Facebook founders, Dustin Moskowitz, um, and one of the ex-Facebook tech leads, Justin Rosenstein. And Justin Rosenstein was on the, on the panel and um, representing Asana. And they made some really interesting points about enterprise. Um, in that, in the previously in the enterprise, tech decisions used to have to come from a CTO, and there was a long investigative process. But now, because of the software-as-a-service models, the end user actually makes the decision of what to buy and when to buy. Um, and because of that, there's quick, high impact. The products are um, bought um, you know, almost with minimal decision, minimal lead time. So if there's a new product that can add value, gets into the organization, and makes big impacts. I'm sure we've all heard of stories of you know, lead times on projects of years and by the time it gets implemented and, and you know, the impact into the organization, um, by the time it gets impacted is many, many years down the track. Um, one of the interesting points that I, one of the guys made as well 
there was a little bit of a debate between the desktop and the mobile um, in the enterprise. I know you and I have also had this discussion uh, um, about whether, you know, is if you are using uh, a, a, um, a platform, an application on your desktop, um, will people actually use that on the mobile? And one of the guys was said, well, no, you know, mobile is mobile and for, for hardcore processing and admin and, and, and really intensive knowledge work, desktop uh, is it. But one of the other panelists made an interesting point. Yes, but that is only for, for existing knowledge workers. And he argued that there's a whole new range of knowledge workers that do their knowledge work on mobile devices, whether they be tablets or whether they be actual mobiles. And I thought that was quite an important point to make and take note of. Mm, as if there's a whole new industry that's, that's being created by the, by the existence of these uh, you know, mobile devices where you can access that content. Well, I guess you know, it's workers that previously wouldn't have done any knowledge work, so to speak, but now because they can take a tablet out onto the field or, you know, underground into the mine or perhaps because, you know, iPads are really easy to use, they can do simple data processing. Suddenly, you have a whole range of new knowledge workers that um, didn't exist before by virtue of the fact they didn't have the sophistication or there wasn't the portability, um, etc., to actually you know, do knowledge work that was applicable to them. So a, a real theme of the day, uh, predictably, has been mobile and mobile, mobile, mobile. And we'll get on to Zuckerberg's talk as well. So, you know, mobile is just is just dominating everything. Obviously, it is it has a consumer bent um, and the enterprise. There, there, there is still very much a strong case for um, de desktop and laptops. But Yes, the mobile and the tablets, it's, it's all really, really bubbling um, around there. So that, that was the enterprise talk, which really was, was quite interesting. And yes, I think it is a good thing that enterprise is becoming sexy. I think it's a good thing for startups. I think a lot of the incumbents, such as Microsoft and Oracle, I think uh, they have to, they're really going to have to keep a very close eye on what's going on. A lot of the easy money for licenses, etc., um, is not going to be so easy anymore because these companies have been excellent at having sales channels, etc. You know, whereas now it's it's really all driven by product. Yeah, I found that quite interesting when they were talking about uh, sort of taking the the consumer business models, so things like freemium and at freemium, and applying them to the enterprise. Um, and kind of you know replacing the whole sales cycle with uh, a freemium product, so you you enter the the you enter the business as a freemium product, um, and and then you basically upsell that way, um, as opposed to relying on the traditional sales. Um, and it's only that kind of model only really works as if you think of enterprises as being sort of a uh, you know uh, an amalgamation of individual people, and obviously you sort of try and hook those individuals. Um, and they become sort of your your sales channel within the organisation, um, and that's that's how startups can really uh, you know overcome the large incumbents in the in the space. So I found that quite interesting. Yeah, and of course it's already happening. You know, with the the, the very well known Australian company Atlassian, they famously say yeah, we we don't have any salespeople. I mean, they they are real textbook case of of that occurring right now. Indeed. 
You're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. We love to hear from you, so you can tweet us at Monkey Podcast. You can also email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. And if you even want to send us an audio file, just email us an audio file with some comments. We really do love to hear from you. Um, we, our listenership is increasing, which is really excited to see. Um, we, we, we track it, and uh, we ha- now have listeners from all over the country, sorry, all over the world, and it's growing. So please feel free to drop us a message. Um, we're doing a TechCrunch Disrupt special podcast talking about um, sessions and, and, and uh, talks at the TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco this week. And uh, it's Tuesday, the 11th of September, where we were in uh, San Francisco, where we're recording this podcast. Um, of course, then, the, James, the highlight of the day was Mark Zuckerberg's talk. Now, I, I have been in that uh, design center where TechCrunch have their conference. As I said, you know, many times for the TechCrunch conference and for other conferences, I have never seen it so packed to the brim from top to bottom. It almost felt like there were people just hanging from the ceiling. It was absolutely jam-packed. Um, there was a lot of anticipation. I think there was a lot of expectations. This was going to be Mark Zuckerberg's first um, public speech since the IPO. So, so really quite significant. So he obviously must have done a lot of homework um, before he um, did talk. Did you you listen to this the speech? Yeah, I've watched. I watched the whole watched the whole thing. Um, I, I thought he handled it uh, amazingly well, um, considering uh, you know the the tough questions Arrington was uh, was throwing at him. How did how did it seem to you being there? Look, I, I think you know it's after the after the speech, talking to everyone, everyone was absolutely blown away. I've heard him not in person, but I've I've watched him many times online, and his level of confidence was unprecedented his clarity he it was really it's it was quite remarkable it's it's no surprise that after his speech apparently um, the shares jumped five percent on out of market aftermarket trading which really doesn't surprise me he just he it was there was not a blemish in anything that he said i mean let's let's look at some of the points that um he said of course again he spoke a lot about mobile the one thing which um, I think is interesting. Um, he mentioned search. Now he sort of downplayed it a little bit, but I think that they are going after Google. Um, he said, how, "How many? I think uh, I made a note here. How many searches every day or every month?" It's about a billion or something, I believe. A billion every day. So there's about a billion searches a day, and he said. Um, here we go. It's, it's like, uh, we have a team working on search. We service a billion queries a day. Most people are trying to find people. Uh, search engines are evolving. And Facebook is uniquely positioned for this evolution. I think that was the one interesting little, um, he didn't push it or overstate it, but I think that was quite a significant statement. Well, they've, they've got a huge amount of uh, social graph data 
um, you know, and interest data that they've built up over the years. And, you know, that that's the it's the path that Google keeps trying to go down with all of their various uh, social networks, you know, their plus uh, social search plus your world and all that kind of stuff. It's obviously a very important area for the, the tech companies to get right. But, um, you know, I can see your point. If they if they made that their focus, they could certainly do some very, very interesting things with it. I mean, the two areas where I've often thought Facebook are really missing an opportunity. The one is in search. Um, obviously, because it's, it does have access to all that data and, and that unique data. The other area is is um, email and messaging. I know they've done a terrific job on an integrated messaging system, but I've always wondered why they don't go almost head-to-head against Gmail. I know a lot of people these days use Facebook almost as their default messaging device. They don't even give each other their email address anymore. Why do you think they don't push the whole at facebook.com external email address? I've always found it puzzling. Yeah, that's that's a hard question. I mean, I mean, one answer to it is, well, they, they have, and maybe it just hasn't succeeded that well. I mean, they have obviously spent quite a bit of time in, in focusing on getting their messaging platform right. They've got that integrated solution. Um, and maybe it's just a case that they're they're trying to go the slow burn on it. You know, as as, as he said in his talk, you know, they're they're interested in you know they're very emission, very uh, very much a mission driven company, and you know they're they're just trying to make the world more social and more open. And you know, I guess timelines on these things don't 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 matter that too matter that much to them. It's just a case of doing the best they can do and uh, and waiting until people adopt it or or don't adopt it and going from there. Yeah, I just uh, I. I I've always thought, I've long thought for a couple of years that uh, it could have been a Gmail killer. But um, maybe maybe there's something that I'm missing. And uh, I mean, you mentioned the mission. And uh, he did say, for me, it's not really about fun. It's about mission. And you hear at a lot of these conferences, and particularly in San Francisco and the Bay Area, it's, there's a lot of talk about changing the world and impact and mission, which in a way is refreshing because it's, it's, I really do believe for, and, uh, and you and I live it, that we, we're very much driven by the satisfaction we get out of solving problems and providing value. Um, but it really is, is very overt here. Um, he also got a little bit philosophical where he said, I would rather be underestimated and I think a bunch of people are underestimating us. <laughs> Certainly, based on the stock price. Yeah, Maybe and that's a reaction to it. He claims that their mobile ads, uh, percentage-wise, are returning a lot higher than their desktop ads. One thing that astounded me, he said, up until six months ago, they hadn't, there had not been one ad on mobile. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, it was quite interesting how he was talking about, um, you know, their 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 big biggest mistake, as he called it, of of betting on HTML5. Um, and of course, what he was referring to there was um, they attempted to build an integrated uh, platform across, you know, both uh, uh, the iOS devices and Android and the mobile web, um, and trying to use sort of their web build processes. Um, but obviously, they just couldn't get the the experience and the efficiency they were they wanted, and and it's taken them, you know, two years to kind of reverse that decision and uh, and come up with a, a streamlined position. So, um, and yeah, it was absolutely very clear that that they're focusing <laughs> an awful lot on mobile and getting that right. And I think I think he strategically chose 
to talk a lot about mobile as well because they ha they have been under so much criticism about not being clear about mobile and having you know no mobile you know significant mobile revenues and I think clearly he he wanted to you know pander to the market as well. Mm. And, and he did a great job of it. <laughs> he did a terrific job. I mean, he must have access to some of the greatest mentors in the world. There are some very smart people ar around uh, this part of the world. Um, the other thing that surprised me he mentioned as well is that their mobile version has more traffic than their Android and iOS versions combined. That that is interesting. I mean, I I wonder if that's partly because their their Android and iOS versions just aren't aren't that good, um, and the mobile version is, if anything, a little bit faster on those devices. So that's probably you know my guess for why that that might be happening. Um, but it's kind of kind of hard to know. I mean, I guess I guess there is a big market beyond iOS and Android, so that that could be driving that adoption. And when you're as, a hu as huge as Facebook, I guess, you know, that kind of long tail really counts. Was there anything else, James, from the speech that really, um, you know, piqued your interest? Um, no, it was nothing, nothing major, just really the, the talk of his mistakes. Oh, actually, no, there, there, was, there was one really great quote from him. It was, um, uh, what did he say? He said, uh, I, I make mistakes all the time, but I quick, uh, we fix them very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> that was my favorite quote. I think everyone in the audience liked that one. And uh, I think he certainly pioneered the iterate really fast at all costs. And if we break it, we'll, we'll fix up the mess. And I, I, I mean, if anything, you know, he's, we've got to give him credit for, for, for really dragging that into the mainstream in our industry. Absolutely. He did say um, he doesn't code anymore or he codes for fun because at Facebook, uh, if you code it, um, you have to maintain it, and uh, he doesn't want to maintain it. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> None of us. For human, humans, we all like to build. No one likes to maintain. Nope. Um, so that was pretty much about uh, some, of, some of the highlights from the conference. But uh, as we mentioned, if you're into tech, have a look at the um, website, and they do stream everything live. And depending where you are in the world, you might be able to watch it. You might not be able to watch it. So we're going to take a short break. And after the break, we're going to come back with an interview um, with one of, the, uh, the, one of the interesting companies that I bumped into, Palantir Technologies. So stay tuned, and we'll be back with you after the short break. You're listening to James and Kevin on the It's a Monkey podcast. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Welcome back, 11th of September. It's a Monkey Podcast. You're with Kevin Garber and James Peter. We have a TechCrunch Disrupt special. Uh, we spoke about some of the talks. I wandered around with my uh, new little MP3 recorder, and one company piqued up my interest, which I'd heard about before, Palantir Technologies. James, what do you know about Palantir? Uh, Palantir, they're, they're, uh, they're the, the 
the big data company, aren't they? Yeah, the very big data, and I think I think uh, bordering on the all the uh, um, obscure, you know, governments and uh, banks and and all the real juicy stuff. Yeah, trying to solve uh, big data for everybody. Their um, their founders are ex PayPal, I believe, aren't they? That's right. It's P- Peter Thiel, I believe, who's uh, I think it's a founders fund. Um, Peter Thiel was yeah, one of the PayPal mafia, as they call it, and and he's got some really interesting ideas. He he wants to disrupt education and uh, pays people to drop out of uni, and um, he's 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 spoken at TechCrunch before. Um, and what was interesting, so I saw the Palantir guys, and um, it's, and uh, I went up to the table and I I, I started talking to um, she was a female engineer, really smart and articulate, and I asked her if I could record her, and she said no, and uh, she said <laughs> you know try one of the other engineers. So I kept an eye until another engineer came, and when I first asked him, he looked he got a bit nervous and he thought about it and. Then he said, okay. And I, I think it's probably because they, they are involved in some sensitive areas, you know, predicting, you know, criminal activity and, and all sorts of things like that. I think they, they sort of have to be sort of semi-stealthy. Yeah, that is quite interesting. It's a bit of a departure from the traditional, uh, you know, startup space where, uh, particularly in San Francisco, I think, people are more than happy to talk about themselves at length so. <laughs> there's a lot of transparency and stealth is frowned upon and even ndas non-disclosure agreements can be quite offensive so anyway let's take a listen um to my chat with uh, um, the palantir technology guys okay we're back on the it's a monkey podcast with kevin garber i'm walking around the um, the hall here at TechCrunch and there are a lot of small startups here but one of the companies that did catch my eye that I've been following for a while is Palantir. Have I pronounced it correctly? Palantir Technologies, yes. Palantir Technologies and I'm with Ari Gesher who's a, a senior software engineer. Um, Ari, t- tell us, I know a little bit about it but I think, I think uh, probably fewer people um, know about it outside of the geek world. So just give us the, the helicopter view of what you folk do. Sure. So uh, the modern condition is one where we have a lot of data about a lot of problems in the world. Uh, and, and anytime you're looking at a, a big, complex real-world problem, they tend to share three different aspects. Uh, the first is that uh, it's described by multiple sources of data, sometimes structured, sometimes unstructured. Uh, the data sources don't agree on how to represent the data. And none of them represent the data in the way that the people who know the most about the problem think about the problem, right? You're subject matter experts. If you take the example of something like foodborne illness, uh, someone who knows a lot about how E. coli moves through a, you know, the beef supply doesn't really know a lot about SQL. So even if you can collect all that data together into a single database, they're kind of lost when you give them a SQL prompt. So the way that our systems work is that we start by building a human conceptual model of a problem. Taking the example again of foodborne illness, uh, you have, you know, you can sort of fully specify the problem by people getting sick and checking into hospitals with with some sort of, you know, gut problem. Uh, 
finding out where those people bought their food, from a restaurant or from a store, uh, and then tra tracing back how the food has moved through the distribution networks from, uh, from distribution, like distribution centers back to the original food producers, you've sort of gathered all of the different data about the problem. But you can imagine that this actually comes from many, many different sources, different spreadsheets that you're going to get from different different uh, food distributors uh, from many different places. So the way that our platform works is that you have this model of foodborne illness, which has all these sort of real world objects that we use to think about the problem. And now you map all the data from all the different data sources into our data platform. And now what you get is actually all that data composed across the different sources of data into uh, virtual objects that represent things in the real world. And that's our, that's our data fusion platform. And then on top of the data fusion platform, what we do is we build very rich analytic apps that, that do a lot of uh, let people do sort of guided querying and visualization of the data to answer the questions that they have. So as a, as a foodborne illness researcher, I can now, once I have all that data integrated, I can say, show me all the people who got sick from eating beef in this region during this time. And that will just pop up on my screen. And then I can look and say, you know, show me all the places that they bought their food from. Is there any commonality? And sort of work my way back through the network very, very quickly. What before was sort of a, maybe a days or weeks long painstaking process of cross-referencing pieces of paper or, or different spreadsheets, now becomes really easy to literally dive in and get answers to your questions and do it all using the, your own mental language of the problem at hand. Can you give us some real life examples? You mentioned foodborne illness. Um, these are quite um, sort of substantial um, challenges, I guess, on a state and national level. Can you talk about any ways that you have helped organizations or businesses uh, with your platform? Sure, so one of the things that we do that, that's, as an as a organization that's kind of interesting is uh, we, we care really deeply about our mission, about actually solving these problems out in the world. And we've taken it one step further in that you know, a lot of corporations are involved in doing um, some sort of charity, some sort of giving back. And what we've done is we've actually built a uh, philanthropic team who actually goes and engages with nonprofits. Um, and so one of, the, one of the places that we've worked with um, here in the United States is a, a center, uh, an organization called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So this was actually an organization created by Congress, but they're sort of a private organization. Then they work to aid law enforcement in the case of child abductions. Um, if you're a rural sheriff and someone calls up and says, my child's gone missing, you call up NICMEC, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and you say, I I've got a missing kid, I don't know what to do run me through the playbook. And they have a playbook about how you deal with this. And so what we've done is we've actually donated the software to NICMEC, and they now use it to actually run uh, managing these kind of cases. And they can they can actually reduce the time that it takes them to, um, to, to, to integrate all the different reports coming in from the field, like you send out an amber alert and people start sending in tips, so we think we saw this green van somewhere, so on and so forth. They bring all that together and they can very quickly trace how people are going geographically and, and, and um, guide law enforcement to, to find these missing children. Has it helped find these children a lot quicker? Has there been an uptick in successful recoveries of uh, missing children? So I don't have raw numbers for you, unfortunately. I know that, uh, so they actually spoke uh, at our, we, we run a yearly conference and all the sessions end up on YouTube and you can actually go find their session. They talked about how uh, their response time dropped literally by almost an order of magnitude in terms of being able to integrate this data and get an answer back to figure out what the next step is to try to track down uh, what's going on. So they definitely feel like their response time has gone way, way down, which is exactly what they need to solve this mission. Um, another, another example, not exactly on the nonprofit side, but um, if, you're, if you recall in, in 2008, the United States passed uh, the, the Recovery, and uh, Recovery and Stimulus Act, which 
took almost a trillion dollars and pumped it into the economy to, on various projects. Well, anytime that you decide that you're going to give away a trillion dollars, um, what happens is a whole bunch of people line up to steal from you. They say, let's figure out how to trick the government out of money. And so part of the Stimulus Act set up a, a, a small organization, a, a federal agency called the Recovery and, uh, Recovery and Accountability Transparency Board. And their job was to track all the different grantees of the stimulus money to figure out if they were basically defrauding the government. This is run by a guy named Earl Devaney. And what they did is they put together a counter instance that integrated all kinds of public records data on, on commercial organizations. And so, and they had a list of everyone who's been caught stealing from the government before. And so generally what happens is, um, you have people who have been, they use the term debarred, who have been debarred from, from government grants because of some sort of fraudulent activity in the past. And what they do is they start a new company. And they give it a different name. And then they put their wife's name, you know, they make their wife the president. But maybe they share the same PO box, or maybe they they have two different addresses that are at the same physical place. So the analysts in uh, the Recovery Operations Center at the uh, what's known as the RATB, the RATB, the RATB, um, they uh, would look at each grant and see if they could if they can match it up to a no, someone who was on the list who had, who had been known to do this stuff before, and they were able to recover literally uh, millions of dollars of money that, that would have otherwise gone like out of fraudulent contracts. Do you have any information on, uh, I mean, data as, as the world's become internet enabled and you guys are on the cutting edge of big data, I mean, how much more data is being created in the world today than there was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago? Uh, that's absolutely the case that, uh, I mean, there's been a, a huge explosion of data and I think, you know, the way that I look at it is that like 30 years ago or so, the first commercial database systems came out. And since that time, the world has been recording mountains and mountains of data. And I don't know what the current estimates are, but they keep going up, you know, by orders of magnitude every few years. Um, I mean, I think we're past yettabytes, right? Exabyte, yettabyte, like it's, it's an enormous amount of data. Um, and the thing that's really interesting about this is not the amount of data that's available. But, but how little analysis there is done on that data. So the world has gotten very good at using computers to collect data about other computers. We work with some banks that record something like 500 gigabytes of log data coming off their web servers every day of people accessing the bank. They need good ways to figure out what are the fraudulent accesses to, the, to those accounts and how to shut that down so people aren't stealing money from their customers. But the, the techniques that have gone along, uh, that have come up to process this stuff haven't really kept up with the pace of data to a certain degree, and more importantly, they haven't done a good job of connecting end users, the people who know the most about these problems, with the data. So if you look at the big data space today, which is, you know, as we know, it's a buzzword that goes along with the cloud, um, but, but if you actually look at the, the individual technologies that make up the big data space, things like Hadoop and HBase and Cassandra, Hive, Pig, right, these are all different technologies that are used to do very large-scale data processing. They're all tools for programmers. Right? So if you can hire a team of sharp programmers who understands how to do large-scale data analysis, if they use Hadoop, their life's going to be easier. But if you don't know how to write a line in Java, Hadoop doesn't do you any good. And so there's still this like level of indirection between the people who know the most about these problems out in the world and getting them direct access to the data. And so the approach that we've taken is to build interactive data systems, to do all of the hard engineering that we need to do to be able to put put uh, what I like to think of in the Archimedean sense, right? Archimedes says, if you give me a big enough lever, I can move the world. Talented systems are big data levers, and we put them in the hands of these analysts, and now they can actually directly interact with the data. 
um, and, and ask the questions that they need to ask in their own terms without having to like go to a programmer and say, hey, programmer, can you go figure this out for me? And the programmer comes back a day later and says, hey, the answer's 42. And they go, okay, great. Can you add in this other side query that, and mash up this other data with it? Now we've actually put that, the power of, of that uh, into the hands of the analyst directly. And so not only do they get to iterate um, in, a, in a much more nuanced way where they're in control of the path that they're taking through the data, but they're doing it interactively. So we, we shoot for, and it depends a little bit on scale, but our, our benchmark is about 10 seconds response time. Uh, on the systems, and we're willing to do all of the hard engineering and crazy building large in-memory data structures uh, to make the systems interactive, because that's the way to do the, the most nuanced and complex data analysis against the world's hardest problems. And I think the gap between, as you say, the people that actually have the, the, the genuine, subtle, nuanced um, sort of sense of the data and the tools to interrogate that needs to get smaller if we, if we really are to, to to exploit or take advantage of, of all this amazing data that's generated by our world. I know, think, thinking just as myself, as a CEO, where I've got an, an excellent understanding of our cash flow, of our numbers, every time I use our accounting system, I feel that barrier where I just can't, I can't access the, 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 that, that tool set in sure. the right way, and that tool set is giving me a bit of a one-dimensional view, sure. and and yet I actually understand it even more, and there's, there's something not quite fitting there. Absolutely, I mean, and we, we so we talk a lot about this when we build our systems. Uh, we like to call it friction. It's a really good sort of physical analogy that people understand. Like, what's happened uh, over the past 60 years is that the, 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 the march of Moore's Law has been relentless. And what it's done is it's given us more and more capacity to do computing much faster. And in 1960, if you spent $1,000, you could buy a machine that would do one calculation per second. Today that number is something like 10 to the 10th, right? So 10 orders of magnitude in something like three human generations. And so what, what this means, the takeaway from this is not that we have these fantastic machines. We do, that's great. Um, but it's that in three human generations, we've moved farther in our capacity to, to do computing by machines than we've ever moved in anything ever before, right? Like this is unprecedented in human history to move that quickly. And so what it means is that the field of software is actually in its infancy and we're just figuring out how to better get people to get computers to do their work for them. And the thing that we go back to for inspiration is actually this paper that was put out by a guy named um, J.R. Licklider, very famous. He's known as the Johnny Appleseed of computer science. He, he came up with uh, uh, you know, the idea for like graphical user interfaces. There's actually a whole list of things he came up with. He, ran, he oversaw the project that, that built the internet um, he, uh, he also oversaw the project that, that uh, built the first version of Unix, so like really, really seminal figure. And he, he wrote this paper in uh, 1960 called Man-Computer Symbiosis. Uh, and the general gist of it is that our jobs as humans, much of the work that we're doing is incredibly mechanistic, right? And, and even today with data, it's a lot of like tabulation and doing all these things that you can actually automate by having the computer do. And that the right way to design systems is to offload anything that the computer can do well to the computer and leave the human in the loop to do the things that humans do well. And that's things like hypothesis formulation, doing, building insights with incomplete data or understanding how the nature of data is changing over time. These are things that brains are really, really good for and computers are horrible at. And what happened was right around that same time the idea of AI artificial intelligence came up into the into the, con the mainstream consciousness of the computer science field. And so people spent 60 years trying to build thinking machines. This was like the, the holy grail that they were chasing. And in fact, they chased it so long and failed so many times, they even came up with a term for what happens 
when the world stops funding our projects because we haven't delivered AI, and there's this term, it's actually called AI winter, and it means when people stop giving money to AI researchers, right? And so what was lost along the way was this notion of intelligence amplification. Rather than trying to build a system that fully automates something, why not offload as much as possible to the computer, but keep the human in the loop to guide the very powerful machine to do the work that it's doing? So the frustration that you're feeling in dealing with the accounting systems is that there's an incredible amount of friction. You know the calculations that you want to have done, but there's no good way to tell the computer how to do it, right? And so like I look at, I look at friction as, as existing at all levels of a system, from the low level data integration all the way to the user interface. And the thing that you're actually striving for is, is three things in a, in a system that reduces friction. The first is familiarity, right? So when the user looks at the data, it has to map well to the way they think about the problem that data represents. If you just give you, you know, someone a big, if I, if I give you your accounting information in nothing but binary, it's useless to you, right? It's not familiar at all. It needs to be expressive, right? You need, you need to be able to, to actually compactly express um, very complex operations on the data. And so at, at the limit, the reason why the big data um, genre is the way that it is today is the limit of that is actually programming languages. Programming languages are incredibly expressive, but they're not really accessible to the mainstream, right? There isn't a lot of familiarity there. Um, and so, uh, let's see, it's uh, familiarity, expressivity, um, and then the final one is interactivity, right? So, so um, the system has to sort of work inside the loop of human thought. So things like Hadoop, you can actually build a, a, um, something based on Hadoop that gives you incredible power and even expressivity, but if it takes 20 minutes to run every query because of the machinations that a large Hadoop cluster has to go through, in 20 minutes you've kind of forgotten what you were thinking about. And it's really hard to keep up a train of thought. Even you can maybe be multiplexing multiple questions at the same time, but like any of us who start thinking, it's immediately exhausting to think about having to like wait 20 minutes and then ask the next question, the next question, and you realize halfway through you wanted to ask it a different way. So interactivity, reducing the time that the computer spends doing its work, or, the, or better yet, the better way to think about it is reducing the amount of time between the computer asks for injections of human insight to guide its actions leads to a much better end analysis because you end up with much more nuance, right? There isn't a straight line path to solving complex problems. There's a subtle path that's guided by the insights that you learn along the way as you iterate through each level of analysis. And interactivity brings that back to, to solving these kinds of problems. Are governments changing the way they view their ownership of data and access to data? And, and I know that New York City has opened up a lot of its data. Um, in Australia, um, there seems to be slowly a little bit of a shift in understanding that the net benefit of opening up data is actually positive. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a huge, um, there's a huge movement, I think, in, in many different places. Um, New York has, has definitely taken the lead in releasing a lot of data. Chicago's done some work on this. Uh, Boston went so far as to hire a civic hacker, which was someone that, to give access to all their data to, to figure out how to better use it. Um, oh, access to open data, I think, can only be good for the world because um, by you, you actually want those unintended consequences. You want people who don't work for you to be able to think about what you can do with this data. And you, you need a really confident leader that's comfortable with all unintended consequences. Well, this is true. There's definitely, I mean, open data is not like open source software. And that you can definitely, there can definitely be some serious downsides from the release of certain types of data. And, and you know, we've seen, so it's not without caution, because we've seen, uh, there's been a number of high profile research projects that take uh, basically anonymized data sets and then uh, mash them up with other data sets and are able to de-anonymize them. 
So there's definitely issues around that. It's something we've thought hard about and how to build those, those access controls into our platform. Um, but, but I think that, that, that the opening of data, like it, it ends up, like I look at it as like a gold rush. I mean, we're here in California, and so we, we think about these things in terms of those metaphors. And even like, you know, where, we, where our offices are across the street from Stanford, the reason that Stanford exists as an institution is that Leland Stanford built his fortune selling tools to the gold miners and then founded the university based on that, right? So um, there's, there's incredible amount of value in, in enabling analysis on this raw material, which is the data. And if you open it up to a public who cares and wants that civic engagement to, to make their, their civic spaces better, they're going to, I mean, it sort of, it opens up to that, that full commons of innovation to understand what to do with that data. Um, and I think uh, what we've seen with a lot of the city hackathons that have happened already is that great things come out of it. Things, unexpected great things come out of it. Do you think um, humans today, uh, a predictor of success, at least professionally, is their ability to consume more data? I see that certain types of people have evolved and they're consuming their Twitter feeds, their Facebook feeds, they're Googling their Quora, and they're ingesting and digesting a huge amount of, amount of data, where some other people, particularly older people, are, really struggle with anything beyond a linear type of process. Do you think that's becoming really important for young people today to somehow get a grasp on, on digesting in parallel almost? Well, I think being able to adjust that data is very important just to keep track of the modern world. But I think a better predictor of, of someone's success isn't just the ability to ingest data from multiple sources, but to be able to synthesize information from that data, to be able to ingest it and do analysis on it. And you know, there's um, Hal Varian who was, uh, is a professor listed at two different schools at Berkeley and the chief economist of Google, very famously a few years ago, was quoted saying that you know, there is a gold rush in data and that, if, that, that the future is an analysis. That if you want to figure out a way to build sort of a, a robust path for yourself, learn how to do data analysis. Because we're not about to run out of data anytime soon. We're, we're only accumulating more and more of it over time. And the way, and th there's incredible value in being able to extract value, incredible personal value or professional value, being able to extract value from data uh, and generate insights that actually lead to better decision making. And we're entering this sort of golden age of, of data-backed decision making, uh, data-driven decision making, where people, rather than sort of relying on the intuition of human experts, we can actually consider all the data that we have about a problem, right? Before the size was too big, the scale was too big, uh, and we didn't have machines that could do the processing. With things like big data, you actually can look at all of the data um, and, and actually do really rigorous decision making. And that, that I think, is, is, a, is a, a career path and a future that, that is just beginning to open up for people. Uh, and, and that even if you're not a programmer, because I think programmers also have a very bright future, uh, if you can just understand data and how to do synthesis, you're going to do very well. It's almost moving from an age where people used to, uh, weather prediction was, was much more of an art and an intuition and, and, and now we take it for granted where pretty accurate predictions can take place. Yeah, there was actually an interesting article about this in the New York Times just recently about how that's changed and how, how uh, they've sharpened the, sharpened the teeth of that prediction and, and it's gotten a, a lot better. Um, weather, weather is one of those like really interesting problems where there's just incredible amounts of data and incredible amounts of chaos. Um, I think, you know, looking at things like like marketing or fraud detection, things that are that are maybe that are a little bit uh, have a clearer signal and a little less chaos to them. Uh, there's there's actually incredible opportunity there for people to become uh, to quickly become professionals once they become conversant with the right data tools. Ari, I've really enjoyed uh, talking with you. It's it's one of one of my passions, data. That's why uh, we we built a, a product on on Twitter because Twitter generates a whole heap of interesting data, and we're currently trying to work out what to do with some of the data that we have and um, 
be nice to nice to stay in touch. We've, uh, we'll follow what you guys uh, will get up to. Fantastic. A pleasure talking to you. And I'll, I'll just put a, a quick shout out. We're hiring in Australia. So we have I did, did, didn't know that. We have an office in Canberra, and we're looking for uh, programmers who are interested in working on really big data problems. So. Well, um, Canberra, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a little so bit of a tricky yeah. one. Um, I, I assume that's because you want to be close to federal government? That's correct. Well, um, we'll, we'll put it out there. Um, it's as hard as, uh, as the Valley to hire engineers in, in Australia, but you guys are doing really interesting stuff, so uh, we'll send any interesting candidates your way. Fantastic. Great to talk to you. Appreciate your time. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free Budgie account. Well, there you have it, James. Clearly someone that is very passionate about data. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's amazing what they're doing. Um, you know, some just some of the things he was talking about, particularly in terms of uh, you know using. I mean, obviously it's the um, it's the one that comes up all the time using sort of big data to predict disease and and narrowing down on you know epidemics really quickly. But uh, you know the way they were talking about it in terms of you know real actual results and you know actual usable tech that's that's appearing in the industry it's just it's just fascinating that they're able to do that and able to do it at scale i mean i really do th you know he explained it really well when he said you know the people that really understand the data can't use the tools to manipulate the data and that just makes mm -hmm. so much sense Absolutely. I mean, his his point of view um, in talking about, you know, it's that the the problem the problem is is kind of at all at all levels of the stack. So it's sort of you know the data entry itself, how it's presented to the user, it has to be you know in, in a practical form, um, and then how it's actually manipulated by the user and all the aspects of that that it has to be quick enough in order to you know work work with your your brain and not be a, a hindrance to it. Um, yeah, it's just an absolutely fascinating uh, and insightful uh, point of view. And I think there's not enough companies, um, you know, everywhere there's, there's such a skew towards things like social, etc. But there, there is such a compounding amount of data being generated from everything from our own bodies using our Nike you know, uh, shoes right through mm. to the new Ford cars where they got open APIs to your, you know, I bought a watch that tracks my, um, you know, my sleep patterns. And, and yet it, there are very few companies, uh, you know, on the face of it that are actually helping us digest and, and you know, make good use of all this data. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a big problem in it. Uh, every every single case kind of has to be solved, uh, you know, individually to a certain point. I mean, it does sound like they are coming up with these kind of general solutions. He was talking a bit about how, you know, data kind of gets put into these sort of, uh, you know, virtual object representations that they can then manipulate and uh, um, and bring bring the results out of. Um, and it's very interesting that, that he kind of sees, um, you know, big data... Uh, usage is kind of being the, you know, where AI has 
gone you know it's gone away from being just about trying to, to build these thinking machines to building things which expand human human capabilities and, and take the bits that we're not so good at and, um, and 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 building on top of them i think that's fascinating and he did of course squeeze in that they are looking for engineers in australia so if you are an engineer in australia and want to, to work on big data um, there's a catch though there's always a catch and the catch is um, you have to move to Canberra. But I, I actually like Canberra. Do you like Canberra? Uh, it's okay. It's a little bit quiet for me. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's sort of like a city in the bush. Yeah, it's got a lot of charm to it. But uh, they're obviously working with the federal government there. He, he didn't um, want to elaborate on that, but... Um, yeah, it's definitely a, uh, an interesting company to follow. I mean, there there are literally zillions of small companies there that are doing all sorts of quirky, interesting stuff. And what made me laugh was what people do to get attention there. It's, it's a lot more radical than a few years ago when you and I were there. There was actually a chap dressed in a wedding dress, a full wedding dress, including the little headpiece. I don't know. I don't know what you call it, but a little veil. I think. Yeah. You know. He was, and the whole day he was hanging out um, in a wedding dress. So, um. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, uh, bit desperate for attention there. Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, you're listening to James and Kevin on the It's a Monkey podcast. Please tweet us, please email us. Um, I, so, I then also took a walk around and um, I just thought I'd go for the quirkier end of the spectrum. Um, so I'll play two interviews that I did, one with a social networking company from Chile who have a social network for dog owners. Um, I sort of secretly wanted it somehow to magically be for dogs. I'm not exactly sure what I was thinking, but somehow I was, <laughs> I was hoping there was some <laughs> secret source. That, um, and then I actually bumped into, um, there, there's something called SF City, which um, is a real interesting initiative put together by some of the tech companies in San Francisco and some of the angel people to actually promote San Francisco. So let's take a listen to those two um, and we'll be back after that. So I'm here at uh, TechCrunch Disrupt Day One, um, and I'm just walking around the, the pavilion area, which is jam-packed with startups from all over the world, literally all over the world, you name it, Africa, South America. And I've just come across um, Kloof. Do you pronounce it Kloof? Kloof, yeah. Um, which it had to happen at some stage, which is uh, social media for pets. So I bumped into Mario, who's uh, from Kloof. T tell us. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the platform, how it evolved, wha what it does. Well, Kloof is an iPhone app for pet lovers, so you can create profiles for your pets, uh, upload really nice pictures of them, share, the, share them with other pet lovers, and it's really easy to connect with other people because based on your location or the kind of pet that you own, we recommend you other pet lovers. So is it for pet lovers to meet each other or or I assume it's not for the pets to <laughs> connect with each other. It could be. It, it has happened that pet lovers have met each other and, for example, have been dating to, to have a dog walk. 
anything could happen. Uh, how long have you guys been going for? Uh, for we started on January this year. We are from Santiago, Chile, and we launch our Alpha on June. And um, you launch your Alpha in June, and uh, what's the uptake been so far? Uh, we have had 3,000 downloads so far, and we just raised our angel round. And your, your investment is from Chile or from? Um, New York-based uh, angels and also Chilean investors. And how's uh, TechCrunch been for you guys? Amazing, an amazing experience. A lot of cool people here, other startups. It's been great. And, and what's the, the startup scene like in, in Chile? In Chile, well, it's uh, with a lot of buzz because there's a program called Startup Chile that brings startups from all over the world to do their businesses. In Santiago, for six months, they give you a $40,000 grant. Is this the, the, um, the federal, the, the national government? Yeah, that's the one, Startup Chile. So there's a lot of companies who have met really cool people from all over the world. It's good to be in Santiago now. There's good, good to hear. We hear a lot about the American companies, but it's good, good to hear that there's, there's, other, there's other activity in other parts of the world. So wha what's the URL? Or do they just go to the, the, the Apple uh, store? How do, how do people find out about you, you guys? You can find us on the Apple on the, on the App Store. It's spelled K-L-O-O-F, Flu. K-L-O-O-F. Well, uh, good luck with it. I don't have any pets, but... Um, I, I'm, I'm sure the pets out there will appreciate the, the opportunity to meet each other and have their owners meet each other. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Okay, just wandering through the TechCrunch Disrupt halls, and I came across an interesting stand, um, SF.City. How, how do you pronounce it? SF City. SF City. Um, one of the amazing things about... San Francisco, of course, is the tech startup scene, totally unique in the world. It attracts the best of the best from around the world. I heard um, the mayor last year, whose name I forget, the previous mayor. Gavin Newsom, the mayor uh, last year or the year before, spoke at TechCrunch Disrupt, and it was such an incredible speech. I almost wanted to pack my bags and just move over straight away. So. Um, SF City, it seems to have been set up by some of the people passionate um, ab about San Francisco, including Ron Conway, who's incredibly um, well-known in the angel world, and I know he's incredibly pro-San Francisco. So I'm, I'm sitting here with um, Kia Calderup-Lane, Calder and to just tell us just a little bit of an overview of what's the brief of SF City. So SF City stands for San Francisco Citizens Initiative for Technology and Innovation, and that's really what it is. We connect, we are a big connector here in San Francisco in the Bay Area in that we connect SF City government to SF tech companies and also to SF community members. So we work as a conduit force, a chamber of commerce uh, of sorts, to really connect people so that we can work on items of civic action to make San Francisco a better place to work and live. So give us an example of, of, of how you have helped a startup, whether it's a local startup, a new startup, an existing startup. Give us a concrete example of the type of project where you guys really facilitated and smoothed out some of the edges. Okay, well, um, today for one, let me just say, we uh, launched one of our biggest projects, which is called Smart Muni. And so that was founded through a hackathon 
where a company, you know, through a hackathon was able to be picked to develop this app, which is really going to revolutionize our way of public transit. And, to, and just to tell um, the listeners that, that the Muni is, is part of the public transport system in San Francisco. As of MTA. But two months ago, when I had first come on staff here at SF City, uh, we launched this thing called the SFPD Public Safety App. And SFPD is for San Francisco Police Department. And when we launched that, we launched that with one of our member companies. So we have about 315 member companies here at SF City, one of which is ArcTouch, which is a very little, well, not well known company called ArcTouch here in San Francisco. And with the team of their engineers, we developed this app that is public safety app that our police officers now are using in the field on iPads, on tablets, on iPhones, on you know Galaxy, Samsung, whatever you call it, whatever you want to call it. They, they're using it as a smartphone device, a smart device. They're using these apps that will that are really increasing the efficiency of our public safety officers. Um, believe it or not, SFPD just got email last year, so that's uh, that's quite remarkable. That's that's a little bit of a two a two tier city you have going here, where you have Silicon Valley down the road and and your offices don't have email. Yeah, so that's the that's the idea. Is we see a challenge when something like that. Our the chief of police, Greg Sir, came to us and said, "Look, I have this problem." 40% of my officer's time is spent going from the field after an incident has happened to the, their police department office and writing up a report and submitting it. 40% of their time, they're not out in the field, they're not protecting our civilians. So what we did was we saw that challenge and we went to the tech sector and said, what are your ideas? And ArcTouch came up with a solution via this public safety app, which now all of the new cadets and the new officers are learning when they're at the police academy. That's what they're learning on is on this public safety app. And it's increasing efficiency out in the field by 40% of their time is not out is not in their office now. It's actually out in the field. They're able to write up an incident report within two minutes on their smart device and have that in and really be efficient with our public safety and with their time. What was the interest in the member, um, the, the member company in developing this app? What do they get out of it? So, I mean, San Francisco is a huge urban city that's well known throughout the world. Everyone loves San Francisco. It's, you know, the tech epicenter, really. It's becoming the innovation capital of the world. And so, with that, ArcTouch gains the name of being the developer of the first ever public safety app in the world. And next thing you know, Mayor Bloomberg's office in New York is knocking on their door asking for it. You know, other cities want this app, and who are they going to turn to for that? They're going to turn to, you know, the rock stars, ArcTouch. So a little-known company like ArcTouch suddenly becomes this worldwide renowned company that developed the first ever public safety app and increased efficiency in public safety. Is San Francisco any good at opening up its data? Like I know in New York, they've had um, very well-known hackathons where they've opened up their data. Um, the developers develop around that data with the understanding that the, the city then gains the, the rights to that app. Is San Francisco involved in anything similar? Yeah, exactly. Just like the thing I told you about earlier, the SF Smart Muni app, that was developed in a hackathon very similar to what you just described. And who was that hackathon put together by? And the city of San Francisco, does that encompass Silicon Valley? 
in every so it encompasses the departments it, it encompasses the office of civic innovation it encompasses you know a great sprawl of different entities and groups that are working together for san francisco and um if if there's i know there's a lot of startups internationally usually consider san francisco or new york what in your opinion just list one or two of the benefits of San Francisco over New York in terms of being a start startup and starting out from zero or close to zero. San Francisco is really, we're the birthplace of civic innovation. I mean, you look at Silicon Valley's down the road, they're our neighbor. I mean, this is where the internet, California is where the internet, you know, boomed, where it started, where, you know, the first dot-com era happened. And it's continued since then. It's been growing, growing, growing. We have the strength, we have the capacity, we have the numbers, we have the best restaurants, we have the best bar scene, you know, I mean, it, we, ha we really have it all. But in New York, you have, in New York, you have, you have a lot of beautiful things, but you have a lot of things and it's saturated. The tech sector becomes saturated over there. Whereas here in San Francisco, we are becoming the innovation capital of the world because we're known for tech. I, I agree, I tend to, uh the density and intensity of tech is absolutely unprecedented, and it's and it's thick in the air. TechCrunch disrupts. Um, Kia Calderup Lane, thank you very much for joining us um, from SF City, and um, I'm sure we'll cross paths again sometime soon. Sounds great. Thank you. So there you have it. Some interviews from the floor, the concourse at TechCrunch Disrupt. You can hear even in the background, the buzz and the energy. And if you're listening to this podcast and you want to be tech entrepreneur or are tech entrepreneur and you have the means to go to a TechCrunch Disrupt conference, I really recommend it. It is worth every cent. Um, the tech startup journey is a long road. It's a marathon. It's a roller coaster. It's really, you know, Mark Benioff, um, from Salesforce, James, he was interviewed today as well, the founder of Salesforce mm -hmm. by uh, Michael Arrington. And Michael Arrington said, well, you, you live a third of the year in Hawaii now, don't you? And he said, I do, but you know, it's, it's my job is the type of job that can really grind you down and burn you out. And, and, uh, and being involved in tech startups, you really need to find ways to fill yourself up. And I find these conferences um, a terrific ways to, to fill people up. So I really do recommend it. So those were two interviews from the floor there. And uh, that th those were the, the two days of day one, day two, and still day three to go at the TechCrunch Disrupt Conference in San Francisco. Yeah, sounds like, uh, sounds like you're having a great time over there. It's where uh, all, the, all the cool kids are in the tech community. Um, I hear uh, even Jessica Alba was there yesterday. Did you get a chance to have a chat to her? Oh, interesting you should mention that. You know, these days, celebrities and sports people and even politicians want to be involved with tech. Uh, Corey Broker, who's the, um, I, th I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's the, the mayor of New Jersey, really smart guy. He launched some sort of tech startup yesterday. Um, Jessica Elba, she walked right past me and one of the guys next to me said, hey, can we have a photo? And she said, sure, but afterwards. And... Um, She's, of course, the famous actress. She's gorgeous. She's not your typical tech <laughs> crunch <laughs> disrupt attendee. Um, her heels were looked like they were, gosh, I've never seen such big heels. She had a huge bag. And she's got some, some mother-related startup. And she was seemed pleasant enough. And, um, but, you know, James, it's funny. At these tech startups, 
people people aren't really celebrities are there's a different type of celebrities you know people aren't that interested in the jessica alba you, you know the 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 hall wasn't totally packed at for the jessica alba talk at um it reminds me when you and I were at the Shorty Awards in New York. Um, Managed Flutter, one of our products, was nominated for an award. Uh, we went to New York um, to the ceremony, and one of the awards was presented by Miss America and Miss Teen America. Obviously, exceptionally attractive woman. Um, minor celebrities, I guess. When they came up to um, present the award, a few people yanked out their cameras and took photos. And then for the next award, David Karp, who's the founder of Tumblr, he came out to present the award and everyone took out their cameras and took photos of David Karp. So, you know, people were far more interested in Mark Zuckerberg than Jessica Elba. It's, uh, w we definitely live in our own little bubble. But um, anyway, you know, definitely genetically, genetically blessed. So um, we still have one more day to go. So, um, yeah, I trust you'll, you'll probably follow some of it online tomorrow. Yeah, definitely. I'll try to capture a few more talks and uh, get some of the get some of the vibe virtually. And we did get some feedback that we love hearing what James has to say. So please let him talk. So um, you know, it's uh, people do notice uh, that that this is a, a shared insight, and uh, we we certainly enjoy it. This is episode number four. I think I've got that correct. Uh, I've lost count. Oh, yes. No, it's definitely number four. Yep. Um, so if you're listening, our schedule may be a little bit um, erratic over the next couple of weeks. We are trying to get it out once a week. Um, I am traveling uh, to San Francisco. I'll then be going to New York to explore some opportunities. It is a little bit tricky to do the podcast on the road, but we are going to try it, um, keep, keeping it going. Please keep the, the, the feedback coming. Um, we, it's a monkey podcast. We cover everything related to the, the tech economy. Um, we hope you enjoy it. And until next time, it's a goodbye from myself in San Francisco. And goodbye from Sydney, Australia. And uh, until episode number five, thanks for listening to the It's a Monkey podcast. Bye.